Good morning. Good morning. And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, again, it is such a privilege to come before you and humble our hearts and minds. We invite your spirit to join us. May we grow deeper in our knowledge of your kingdom, and may we reflect your character more fully as we share these words together today and also throughout this community. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number nine in the quarterly, uh, the three cosmic messages today. And if we turn to Sabbath's lesson, the title is called A City Called Confusion. And we're going to read the first three paragraphs out of Sabbath's lesson, which says, uh, the great controversy theme is summarized in Revelation with the symbolism of two women, one clothed with the sun in Revelation 12 and the one dressed in scarlet in Revelation 17. The striking symbol of the woman clothed with the sun in the, daz- is in the dazzling glory of Christ is found in Revelation 12. She is faithful to her true lover, Jesus. She is not defiled with the corruption of false doctrines. Throughout the Bible, a pure woman symbolizes the bride of Jesus or the true church. In Jeremiah 6, 2, the prophet says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. The prophet uses the expression of daughter of Zion or a faithful woman to describe God's people. In contrast, the Bible likens apostasy to harlotry or adultery. Speaking of Israel's rebellion and unfaithfulness, Ezekiel laments, you are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. So why if the, is, if the lesson is entitled, A City Called Confusion, do we start out talking about two women? The memory verse talks about a lamb. And the memory verse talks about a lamb. There you go. Uh, because the Bible has many ways of describing revealing or symbolizing the war between Christ and his, and his followers and Satan and his followers. Many ways of doing this. Can you think of some of the other ways besides the two women? That's one way to describe the two groups. Other ways. Sheep and goats. Sheep and goats. Wheat okay. and tares. Wheat and tares. The two cities, Babylon, Jerusalem. Two nations, Egypt, Israel. Light and darkness. Light and darkness. Good. Yeah. Fruitful vine or tree. Withered vine or tree. Righteous and unrighteous. Good and evil. Life or living. And death or dead. Healthy and diseased. Lamps with oil. And lamps without. Wise and foolish. And then two types of rulers are described. The ruler who, though equal with God, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself all the way to the cross, sacrificing himself to uplift others, versus the one who I'm going to ascend on high and become like God. One seeking to elevate self, one sacrificing self to elevate others. We have two different types of leadership. How about two different types of law? And then two different types of government, how we govern. How about two temples? The temple of God. Know ye not that ye are living stones built together in a house for the Lord? Versus Revelation describes the followers of Satan as the synagogue of Satan. How about two spirits? The Holy Spirit and test the false spirits, right? How about two paths? The narrow and straight path? Two gates? Two ways? So, why does the Bible use the city Babylon, whose name means confusion, as a symbol for Satan's rebellious system? Well, Ephesians 
four, remember it's contrasting from the pure, from, from the holy. Ephesians four, starting in verse three, it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God is the creator of reality. There is one God who built reality to operate in the universe and operate in harmony with his character, his design laws, his protocols, his principles. And it says in Colossians 1, 16, 17, and then 19 and 20, it says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only does God create, God sustains. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Notice the whole universe is created by God, sustained by God, reconciled back into unity or oneness, heavenly and earthly, coming back together. There's a oneness. Hebrews 1.3 says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, God builds reality, and the reality God builds only continues to operate in healthy ways in harmony with him. So in light of these Bible verses... I want you to consider this Bible commentary by one of the founders of the Adventist Church. And this is out of uh, a, uh, a source called Homeward Bound, page 182. See if you agree with this. Is this, is this in, in harmony with what the Scripture says? Upon all created things is seen the impress of the deity. Nature testifies of God. The susceptible mind brought into contact with the miracle and mystery of the universe cannot but recognize the working of infinite power. Not by its own inherent energy does the earth produce its bounties and year by year continue its motion around the sun. An unseen hand guides the planets in their circuit of the heavens. A mysterious life pervades all nature, a life that sustains the unnumbered worlds throughout immensity, that, that uh, lives in the insect, atom, which floats in the summer breeze, that wings the flight of the swallow and feeds the young ravens which cry, that bring the bud to blossom and the flower to fruit. The same power that upholds nature is working also in us. The same great laws. What kind of laws are these? The same great laws that guide alike the star and the atom control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of life to the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has jurisdiction over the soul. Moral laws. Moral laws are the same laws? Yes, they're design laws. They're protocols upon which life is constructed to to operate. From him all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same, a life sustained by receiving the life of God, a life exercised in harmony with the creator's will. To transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe and introduce discord, anarchy, 
and ruin. This is powerful. If you really take some time and just reflect on the implications, when you really, this is all about design. God is the creator. When he builds, he builds reality. His laws are those protocols upon which life is designed to operate. Physical, mental, moral. There is one God who created all things and through him holds all things together. There is one design law that emanates from God and holds all things together. That's the law of love. All God's distinct physical laws are manifestations of the principle of love built into reality. God dispenses, disperses, diffuses his own eternal energy to create and then sustain reality. Only by being united with God having his spirit dwell within, being conformed to harmony with him, do we have life? There is no life disconnected from God, who is the source of life. Does that make sense? So then sin is what? Lawlessness. It is breaking the bonds of love and trust, severing the link with God, who is the source of life, deviating from his design protocols. So there are only two paths. Life and death, harmony with God, disharmony, unity, disunity, oneness, fragmentation. There's only two paths. Once a person leaves the path of truth, the path of oneness with God, and enters the path of satanic delusion, falsehood, the path of lies, once you enter that path, how many different lies are there? No, this is a serious question. It's truth or lies, but once you leave truth, how many different lies or falsehoods are there? Infinite. An infinite amount. That's why Satan's system is Babylon, the city of confusion, because lies always confuse, disconnect from reality, and result in ever-increasing division, fragmentation, argumentation, hostility. Do you see the world ever increasing fragmentation, division, and delusional thinking. (laughs) So, from our magazine, Unmasking the Beast of Revelation 13 and 17, and we have, I found a few, we have a few out here on our table. We we ran out, we're going to get a whole new shipment this week, but but we do have some here today, uh, if you guys are interested in taking some with you. Read the following. Babylon the Great refers to an imposed law system, the false system of methods that all earthly governments wield and that all false religions teach about God. Of all the nations in, in the Bible, and if you look in the Bible, say, why is Babylon selected? There are so many nations and, and cities and groups fighting against Israel, the Assyrians and the, and, the, and the Egyptians and so many. Why Babylon? Because Babylon was the first historical group that codified law, the Code of Hammurabi, imposed law. Embracing this lie that God's law works like imposed human law makes God out to be no different in character than a human dictator. It changes how we see everything. Thus, this system is an abomination because it infects the hearts and minds of people with the corrupt picture of God and makes them become like him. They go around doing these things to coerce other people under the guise of being religious or honoring God. And that's why Christianity right now is divided into 41,000 different groups. 
Think about all the different human laws. If we were to get one copy of every law from this city, this county, this state, and our federal government, just one copy of every current active law, how, many, how, how big a room would we need? You see, when you actually start making up rules, it just never stops multiplying. And this is what's happened to Christianity when they believe God's law works like human law. Well, we have to get the rule right. And so we argue back and forth. Is it this rule? Is it that rule? Is it Sabbath or Sunday? And then once we decide it's Sabbath, then what are the things legally we're allowed to do on Sabbath? You ever had that argument? And this led to the Dark Ages Christianity, a rule-enforced, beastly Christianity that would pass laws, imprison people, go on crusades, burn people at the stake, all in the name of uplifting the God that they worship. And as the evolutionists have accepted the wine of Babylon, this idea that the God of the Bible is the God who makes up rules and uses power to punish rule breakers, as evolutionists have have accepted that idea, that's the one, they have rejected God. Now, it's better to not believe in God than to believe a a tyrant rule maker with infinite power who can torture you in hell for eternity. It's better to reject God altogether. And why do they reject God? You ask them, describe for me the God you don't believe in. They'll describe this tyrannical abuser. And you go, good for him, I don't believe in him either. <laughs> but, but understand, they're, they're taking that position because they've accepted the lie that God's law works like human law. And he's just got more power and therefore can bring more punishment. It's the same wine. When we turn to design law, it always leads to unity. Always leads to unity. As people embrace and accept design laws... Unity is established, the oneness of our faith. People of different religions and of no religion at all never argue over whether they will fall or float if they step off a building. They never argue over that. They never argue what happens if they tie plastic bags over their heads. When you, when you come to design law, it, it isn't Well, our church said you don't have to breathe. They argue when they think God's law is imposed. What is the legal, the legal, the authorized, the right way to be baptized? Who is the legal authority to do a baptism? A a priest, an ordained pastor, a man or a woman? Who has the legal right to conduct a communion ceremony or offer the Eucharist? Only individuals ordained by the pastor or the denominational system? What is the legal day to attend church? What is the right way, the legal way to observe Sabbath? If, 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 if I had the TV on and, and then my kids called on the phone and, and, and the sun set before I hung up the call and the TV was still on, have I broke the Sabbath? Did I break a rule? What's the legal things I'm supposed to do? And on and on it goes. Understand this. To the degree that any religion or church or organization teaches that God's law functions like human law, They are advancing Babylon and obstructing the unity that's inherent in our faith. And that leads us to a sentence that's right in the middle of our quote from the lesson. And it says that the true people of God, the pure woman, the true church, quote, is not defiled with the corruption of false doctrines, unquote. Certainly the wine of Babylon includes falsehoods. There's no question. But as having pure doctrine, the right doctrinal list 
the same as being part of the pure woman in the pure church and having the pure wine. I mean, if you have the right Bible Sabbath, does that mean you are part of the pure woman and you would never crucify Christ and want him off the the, the cross by sunset to keep the Sabbath? You wouldn't do that if you have the right Sabbath. Or can you have the right doctrine? And if you think about the list of doctrines, when Jesus was on earth and the church, his church, the Jewish nation, did they argue with him because he was teaching a different Sabbath? He was bringing a different Bible. He was teaching a different temple to attend. Or do you remember the woman at the well? He said, no, it's, it's Jerusalem. She asked Jerusalem or Samaria. No, he said Jerusalem, salvations of the Jews. Different, different temple, no. Different, different feast, list of feast days. Different tithing system. What doctrinal belief did, did, did they actually disagree with Jesus on? So because they had the right doctrines, did that make them part of the pure woman? The right church. No. <laughs> Salvation is not found in cognitive correctness of Bible facts or doctrines. Salvation is found in a pure heart and right spirit reconciled to loving unity and loyalty with God the Creator. Remember, lies believe break the circle of love and trust. So to the degree that we do believe false doctrines, particularly about how we understand God, that will undermine our love and trust in him. So there is an element there that's true. But the point is you can have right doctrines and still have the false God because you have the right doctrines under the guise of an imperial dictator who makes up rules and punish you for rule-breaking. In Sunday's lesson, contrasting two, system, two, two contrasting systems... What would you say those two systems are? We've already given lots of metaphors about them, the, the pure woman and the harlot, but what would you say those two systems are, two contrasting systems? It asks us to read Revelation twelve seventeen, And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So these faithful end-time people, who are they? Two defining characteristics. Keep the commandments of God, have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Is this describing a denomination? No. If you become part of the denomination, if you can find one that has these two and join them, are you now part of the, 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 the pure woman? No. Or is it describing people, individuals? that have certain characteristics represented by keeping the commandments and having the testimony of Jesus. Well, what is the testimony of Jesus? Let's, let's identify these two elements. Revelation 19.10 from the New King James says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Anybody heard that before? Yes. <laughs> well, what does it mean, though? Some in the SDA church have argued it, it means that the end-time true church will be identified by having a prophet, someone who has the biblical gift of prophecy. These same faithful and well-meaning Adventists then identify Ellen White as fitting that role. So they argue that the SDA church fits the description of these end-time faithful people because the organized church teaches people to keep all Ten Commandments and Ellen White had the gift of prophecy. Have you ever heard that argument? Yes. yes. Yeah. Is that what Revelation is teaching? No. no. There will be many prophets in the time. There will be many prophets in the time, he says. Prophets, yeah. Yeah. Well, what about Seventh-day Baptists? 
who keep all Ten Commandments and teach all Ten Commandments? Would, would they fit this? And, so, and, and the faithful Advent, well, no, because they don't have the gift of prophecy. And I would say, well, what they teach the Bible, and what is the Bible? The Bible is the writings of dead prophets. What, is, Ellen, what, is Ellen White alive and active in the church today? No. <laughs> or we simply have the writing of dead prophet, if you believe she's a prophet. They're the writings of a dead prophet, which are what the Bible is, writings of a dead prophet or dead prophet. Hmm. What is Revelation speaking about? A denomination of people who keep all Ten Commandments and have the writings of a dead prophet or something else. Consider Revelation 19.10 from some other versions. Remember that King James says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here's the New English translation. For the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The good news says, for the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets. And the New Century Version says, because the message about Jesus is the spirit that gives all prophecy. Is that, is that triggering your mind to think maybe this is meaning something other than just the, some person who was gifted with the prophetic gift? So what is the meaning, the phrase, they uh, keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus? I think it's very simple and straightforward. What testimony? The testimony of Jesus. If you went into court and were called on the witness stand, you would be giving what? Testimony. testimony, okay? Jesus came and gave testimony. What was his testimony? John 14, 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John 8, 19. You do not know me or my Father. If, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. John 17, 4 and 6. I have brought you glory. This is uh, Jesus praying to his Father. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do, Father. I have revealed you. What was Jesus' primary testimony? The truth about his Father. If you see me, the, this, is, this is who the Father is. The Father and I are one. I could go on to many more quotes. So my paraphrase in, in the remedy goes, for the testimony of Jesus, the testimony Jesus gave about his father is the same as that which inspires the prophets. The prophets give the same testimony about God that Jesus' testimony is. They all, they all come from the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit, the same truth, and the same message about God is given. And so any inspired person will reveal the same truth or testimony that Jesus revealed. Thus the, thus, the identifier of the end-time people of God is that they will give the same testimony about God that Jesus gave. That God is the creator. His laws are the design laws. God is for us. Who can be against us? He did not spare us. Somebody gave him up. How will not he give us all things? That's, that's Romans 8. God is for us. God is not the cause of pain, suffering, and death. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full-grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. That's what scripture teaches. That's what Jesus taught. That God is not legally required to inflict punishment for sin. These are the things, the testimony that we will give. If we're going to be part of this group, we'll give the same testimony about God that Jesus gave. That God does not need a legal payment of a human blood sacrifice to propitiate his wrath. Jesus said in John 16, 26, if you want to check it out, I will not pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you. Jesus' own testimony, I'm not going to heaven to plead the Father for you. 
Do we have a system that teaches other? Do we give that same testimony? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This end time group give the same testimony that Jesus gave, the true people. God does not send his Holy Spirit to inspire or empower people to lie about him. Yes or no? Does he send his spirit to empower people to misrepresent him? No. No. So this gift of prophecy will not be empowering people to give a different testimony about God than Jesus gave. It will be the same. So I want you to ask this question. Online audience, anybody here, whatever your historical background, denominational church has been, does your denominational church present the Father in the same light as Jesus did? Or has your denominational church been infected with the pagan view of God? A Babylonian view. That, God pre- that, that presents God as a being who makes up rules and then uses his power to inflict punishment on rule breakers like Nebuchadnezzar did with the statue and the three worthies who he threw in the fire. Is that your view? God makes up rules. Worship me. If you don't worship me when the music plays, I'm throwing you in a fire, and that fire is going to burn for all eternity. <laughs> Babylon, is that the view your, teach- your church teaches? How about... Does your denominational church teach that God is the source of inflicted torment and death for punishment of sin, calling it a just punishment? Mm -hmm. Does your church teach that God needs an intercessor, a mediator to plead with him in order to prevent him from lashing out with divine wrath against sinners? If you do, you're not teaching the testimony of Jesus Mm -hmm. because Jesus said he was not going to pray the Father for us because the Father himself loves us. There's no need. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And if you want direct evidence of that, if you believe Jesus is fully God as well as man, who interceded with Jesus to forgive those who crucified him? Who interceded with Jesus when Jesus was washing his betrayer's dirty feet? Who stood between to protect Judas from Jesus? And on and on it goes. Those who were trying to trap him constantly, who had to plead with Jesus not to hurt them? If you believe Jesus' testimony, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one, does your church give the same testimony about the Father that Jesus gave? If your church denominational system teaches any of these ideas that I just questioned, then it reveals it's infected with the wine of Babylon. And taking that view of God to the world does not constitute the end-time remnant message. It only perpetuates the confusion. Other versions of Revelation 12, 17 uh, read, here's the NIV, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The good news says that are faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. And the New English says, hold to the testimony about Jesus. Again, it gives us greater... And all these are legitimate translations of the Greek. And the translators have to decide, what's the meaning? What's the meaning? Well, what about the second identifier? So, first identifier of this end-time remnant people, they take to the world the same testimony about God that Jesus gave. That's the first identifier. The second identifier is keeping the commandments. What does that mean? I think we really covered it well last week, don't you think? We talked about the meaning. 
when we went over the whole Sabbath question, is it a list of rules? Or is it living out the principles of God-like love in how we treat others? Being loyal and faithful to God and not betraying him and carrying his principles in how we treat others. Monday's lesson, third paragraph, says Revelation 17.2 continues its dramatic portrayal. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The symbolism of the pure juice of the grape is used throughout the New Testament and represents the untainted pure blood of Christ poured out for our salvation on the cross. Jesus says, this cup of the new covenant in, in my, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, when the pure new wine of the gospel is distorted, the teachings of the word of God are replaced with the teachings of human religious leaders. It becomes the wine of Babylon. This idea here is correct. Uh, the, The wine of Babylon represents the corruption of the pure by elements that degrade it into something that confuses the mind and intoxicates the soul. That's what what it really is. Taking the pure truth of God's kingdom and replacing it with something corrupting. and And you all know it's not talking about ethanol. Wine is a symbol. The pure wine is a symbol in the New Testament. Was pure wine in in the flesh uh, in the in the New Testament was replace the old system of blood and flesh. You remember Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up in the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. You know, the Jews had a hard time with that. Imagine if some preacher said that to you today, literally. I mean, just these words. It's like, whoa, that's a little strange. That's a little weird. But what's the meaning? John 1 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you think about these two symbols, the flesh of the sacrificial animal, which they would eat at least on Passover, and then the blood, which was used to cleanse in the sanctuary system, replaced by bread and wine, which we take into the spirit temple rather than the physical temple, which the physical temple is a symbol of the spirit temple. Bread and flesh become, when you eat them, literally, are broken down into little molecules that become building blocks of your physical body. The word made flesh is Jesus, the living truth. And when we take in the word, we take in the truth. And when we take in the truth, those truths that God reveals through Christ, and all the truth really comes through Christ, become building blocks to our ideas, our beliefs, our schemas, our our worldview. And as those building blocks build uh, uh, the framework and displace the lies, we are won back to trust. And we open the heart, it says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. This is the blood. The life is in the blood. And we receive a new life. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We're recreated in the inner person. So this is partaking of the flesh, is ingesting the word, winning us to trust that we receive through the spirit the life of Christ, which is symbolized by the blood. And we have a new life, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Yes. And when we take in the bread and eat and are full and are satisfied, we are no longer tempted by junk food because we're satisfied. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and the world offers a lot of junk food to fill the soul, doesn't it? It really does. That's, 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 that's well, I like that. So the symbolism teaches that we must return to the truth and love of God, the flesh and blood, the bread and wine. But the false system 
has a false set of values and beliefs, a false lifeblood, if you will, of the wine of Babylon. Instead of the truth of God's character and love, uh, of character of love and his design law principles, it's driven by the intoxicating lies and inspiring motives of fear, selfishness, power, coercion, and control. I can be safe if I control others. It's intoxicating. This corrupt pagan imposed law system is the system the entire world embraces and used to advance what the world calls justice. The entire world is drunk on the belief that if they can just get their people into political power, then they can usher in a new age of prosperity and health by passing more laws and forcing more people to do what they say. The world is drunk on this. It is delusional. It can never happen. In fact, the more government enforcement, the more division, conflict, and ultimately the destruction of the image of God and people. This is the beastly system. This beastly system of revelation does not rise claiming to do injustice. It's not rising claiming to harm people. It will rise claiming to have a better way, claiming to set things right, claiming to do justice through more law and more coercive enforcement. And we, all we just have to do is just obey the right law and follow the right leader. And if you don't, well, then law requires that first your, your ability to buy and sell must be restrained. And that's only the loving discipline. I'm not really trying to punish you, you see, if I'm the, this corrupt leader. I only want to bring you to repentance, so I'm going to discipline you with restricting your liberties. And then eventually I'll have to imprison you. And of course, because we love others, if you insist on rebelling, then law requires just punishment be inflicted. And I really don't want to do it, but if you system rebelling. Justice requires that I execute you. This is what Adventism teaches, that in the end, at the ends of a thousand years, God will have a tribunal. He'll sit in judgment. He'll look. You didn't accept the payment made by Jesus, and justice requires that God kills them. I don't think that's what Adventism teaches. Uh, that's pretty, being pretty hard on Adventism. You are an Adventist, right? <laughs> I, yes. Yes, I am. So, just as Jesus was a Jew and challenged what they were teaching, and... Uh, so there are two versions of Adventism. There is the, just like there are two versions of Judaism 2,000 years ago. There was the version that the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing, and there was the version that Jesus was doing. And so, yes, I'm an Adventist in the version that I believe it's supposed to be taken to the world, and I'm opposing a version that has been corrupted by imperial law. Mr. White doesn't teach us what you do. She doesn't teach it imperial law. That's correct. And so, so thank you for clarifying that, because um, true Adventism doesn't teach that. You're exactly right. Uh, an infection of imperial Adventism, like imperial Judaism did. And that's why that led them to do what they did to Christ. That's come into the church in more recent times. The Adventism I grew up with teaches the pagan view. Well, I can tell you, I went to, I went to Adventist schools. Me too. I never had that. And this is what was taught in my Bible classes. I right. never yeah, read this in my I Bible didn't hear that either. Right. Well, you can actually read it in the 27 Fundamental Beliefs. I never got the 28 books. I never. I got the 27 books. And in the 27 books, it actually says in the, not in the voted statements. The voted statements are the official statements. But at every chapter after the one paragraph voted statement, there's a long description of what it means. And in the 27 books, it actually describes that God is the one who actually executes the wicked in the end for justice sake. You can find it at page 111, I believe. The copy editor of the review told me that they were never allowed to copy edit that book. Yeah, I, again, it, it was published by the review. But they weren't allowed to copy it. But it, it, it goes out representing what the church teaches. Okay, it just, I'm just saying. So it's not that I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm making this up. It's in the published 
materials, and it hadn't, certainly hasn't been retracted by the church, has it? Hasn't been removed, hasn't been disavowed. No, in fact, uh, when, when this ministry, since, since this has come up, let's, let's, let's expand on this a little more. When this ministry came into being uh, 13 years ago now, we had long conversations with local conference and church leaders, and one of the prime differences is that they insist that God, in order to be just, must use his power to provide appropriate amounts of torment before he executes the wicked in the end. At the end of the thousand years, there will be a great white judgment throne. During the thousand years, records will be reviewed. Saints will sit on committees, will decide uh, who, who uh, has done what, and together have a consensus drawn on how much punishment is just before each person. And some will be in the fires burning a little while. Some will be many days before they're consumed. And we believe in the mortality of the soul. And this is infinite fire. So, so this infinite fire is not naturally killing. There has to be a miracle performed to keep them alive to make sure they get just punishment. This has been in multiple quarterlies that we've taught over the last 10 years. Multiple ones. And I'm going to tell you it's pagan. It's not Christian. And it certainly is not what Ellen White teaches. It's not true Adventism. And so I'm back to the point that I'm making here. I believe the Adventist church as an organization or a group, or a, and it was never designed to be a, an organization. It was designed to be a movement of people. Amen. Okay? And I, and I believe the Advent message was designed to call people back to worship the creator God Amen. and out of an imperial dictator system. And just like the Jewish nation was called by God to be the avenue to prepare the world for the advent of the Messiah the first time, the Advent movement was designed to call the world to prepare for the advent of the Messiah the second time. And just like because they had a message that was powerful and would prepare hearts and minds, Satan particularly targeted that group with a false imperial dictator construct so that when the Messiah came, the leadership of the group did not accept him, except for a couple, Joseph Arimathea, Nicodemus, a few did. But by and large, they did not. The masses... Uh, flocked to him because the message actually changed life. It was real. It was applicable. It's where they lived. Likewise, the Adventist church system, in my view, has been infected with the same imperial idea of law, which has taken these beautiful doctrines that would enlighten our view of God and has corrupted it with this imperial distortion of God, just like the Jewish nation. So, uh, if you hear me carefully, I am not suggesting that I don't believe the Adventist church is called and blessed by God, this, the true church. I believe that it is, a, is where the battle is being fought and Satan's system is actively working to corrupt and obstruct the true message, primarily through imperial law. That's the primary infection, imperial law. And I want to break this out some more. Where is it that Ellen White says, I, I left my phone at home, apparently. I don't know if she ever said that. No, that in the end it will be vital that men know the difference between God's law and man's law. And I see your ministry as being part of that differentiation. We had several of those quotes last week where we talked about the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final movements of its, its origin is heaven, which is a question over God's law. And that's what it began in heaven. It's what I end over. So we're going to look at this corrupt woman in Revelation 17. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of, of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony to Jesus. And the description, this is actually quoting Revelation. Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, 
With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a, a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The title was written on her forehead, this title, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the world. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So let's look at the identifiers of this woman called the great prostitute, commits adultery with the rulers of the earth, dressed in purple, red, and gold, sits on many waters, intoxicates people of the earth with her wine, the wine of her adultery, sits on a scarlet blasphemous beast, has a golden cup filled with abominable filth of her adulteries, has a titled mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of uh, abominations of the earth, and drunk with the blood of the saints. So let's identify these real quick. Identifiers of the harlot. Uh, of the harlot. She describes as a prostitute, and an adulterer. Both prostitute and adultery. Okay? Prostitution is selling oneself for profit. Adultery betrays their spouse. Do you see the difference? This is described as both. So a spouse who's committing prostitution is both a prostitute and an adulterer. You understand the spiritual implication here then. The harlot who commits adultery describes those who claim loyalty to Christ but betray him for gain, for wealth, power, to keep their schools, hospitals, and publishing houses open. It's better for one man to die than the nation, Caiaphas said. We're going we're gonna, to you know, deal with Rome in such a way that they will keep our power and betray Christ to do it. That would be an example. parable of the sower, Jesus describes the parable of the sower, sowing seeds and planting the truth into the heart. Spiritual adultery is choosing and preferring the seeds of lies, falsehood, and abominations about God and accepting them into the heart, allowing those seeds to be planted into the truth. So the great prostitute who commits adultery represents the people who claim to be loyal to Jesus, but who choose and prefer the lies and methods of Satan instead. Having a form of godliness. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power of the rep, Paul would say. And instead of becoming at one, remember, the two shall become one at one. Instead of becoming united with Jesus, they become united with Satan and like him in character. So the adulterer, the, the harlot, the great harlot, internalizes the methods and laws of the kingdoms of this world, the imposed laws with imposed punishments, as the means of pursuing justice and teaches that God's government works the same way which gives birth to all the abominations, the abominable lies about God that infects the hearts and minds of people, undermines trust. This is the wine of the filth of her, of her adulteries. And, and we don't have time today, but we could go down a long, long list of ugly and grotesque things taught about God that all root out of the belief that God's law works like human law. Yeah. This, thus, the harlot represents false Christianity. The harlot that commits adultery represents false Christianity. Not those who have never claimed a belief in God. They may be harlots, but they're not committing adultery because they've never claimed loyalty to the spouse. Identifiers the harlot. Let's look at this. It's very interesting. Think, think I'm making, uh, making a, an assertion about the law that is not in the symbolism. 
the harlot is identified as being dressed in purple, red, and gold. The true church is dressed in white. The colors represent a counterfeit Christ, a counterfeit to Christ, the false. In the Old Testament sanctuary service, the high priest represents Jesus, yes? And notice how they dress the high priest. This is Exodus 28. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. Notice the colors that the harlot has. They have the purple, they have the red, and they have the gold. What's missing? The blue. blue. And the blue represents God's law. Let me show this to you. They don't have God's law. That's what they don't have. Exodus 24, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire. Clear as the sky itself. This is the pavement where they were, pavement made of sapphire. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commands I have written on them. So in the text, we could imply, we could infer that this pavement, which is the only stone mentioned in the text, is what's used to make the the law, this pavement of sapphire-like stone. But the Lord doesn't leave us to really doubt. Numbers 15, 37 to 40. And again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments and to put a blue thread in the tassels. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them. And yet you may not follow the harlotry to which your heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my, and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. So the blue represents the law of God. And the harlot doesn't have the law of God. Wow. <clears throat> Sits on many waters. The waters, you know, represents populations. Thus, this church group is a large, not just one uh, uh, monolithic group, but from many waters, many races, many nations, many ethnic groups will make this, this, this up. So false Christianity meets this identifier. The mother prostitute would be the, the mother church where Roman imposed law was accepted and replaced, God's design law. And the daughter prostitutes represent the rest of Christianity that continues to embrace and accept the idea that God's law works like human law and God is the source of inflicted pain and punishment for sinners. Symbolic wine, pure wine, we just talked about, so I'm not going to spend time on that. We just went over that. Um, mystery. What is this mystery, that, this title, mystery? This is a counterfeit to the mystery of God. The exact counterfeit. And Colossians tells us what that mystery is. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this mystery of Babylon is the opposite of the mystery of God, this mystery of iniquity. How people claiming to be followers of Jesus can be like Satan in character. That's, how is that possible? How can these people, and you want to know uh, how is it possible? By beholding, we are changed, the law of worship. By accepting a false view of who God is and a false character and a false methods and principles and practices, we internalize them and we become like that God, even though we call him Jesus. The people of the apostate Christianity claim to be followers of Christ, but they have rejected God's design law. She is also called Babylon the Great. Babylon was the first nation to make the Code of Hammurabi, impose law, rules inflict, uh, imposed. And thus, this system of Christianity betrays Jesus by teaching God's laws imposed like Babylon. 
These lies about God's law are the basis of her doctrines and teachings and are represented as the intoxicating wine, the golden cup the world is drunk upon. And internalizing this lie about God's law causes a mysterious change in character. Jesus identified these people himself. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in the name of Buddha? <laughs> no, notice, Jesus is saying they're doing it in his name. These people are identifying themselves as Christians in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is the people who Revelation is describing as part of the harlot, part of Babylon. They, uh, the adulterers, they identify as Christian, but they have a system that is anti-Christ. Mm. And that's, that's all I have in my, my, my uh, slides so far, so we'll go back to my notes now. Questions about any of that? To get to that point of rationalization or of, of uh, deceit, you have to have some sort of a mechanism, and I'm, I don't want to just try to get into semantics here, but Christianity promotes the idea of merit, merit-based performance, except that they also bring in, in a strong way, the use of grace as something that can overcome your, your failures or your faults trying to achieve merit. So, in other words, there, there's a track that they run on with this merit-based terminology or narrative that ultimately makes people believe that, well, we have to believe the authorities, we have to cooperate with our government, and so how is it that we can be derailed so completely. The root, the root to what you're saying still stems in what we are emphasizing here over and over again. When you talk about merit, how do you view God's law? Ellen White uses the term merit all the time. Yeah. That we only have hope in the merit of Jesus. Right. But what does it mean? Does it mean merit based on um, human works? Does it mean merit based on some legal application of Christ's sacrifice? And this is what I saw. I think I told you this before. I'll tell it again. There is an uh, interview between a Catholic priest and a, a Protestant pastor. I'm pretty sure the Protestant pastor was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, uh, discussing the question of the Eucharist. And, the, and the, Protestant, uh, the, the Protestant pastor was criticizing the Catholic priest, uh, suggesting that every time that they you know, take the, uh, the, the Eucharist and, and the transubstantiation, it turns into the real flesh of Jesus, uh, that they're sacrificing the Son of God all over again. And the Bible says in Hebrews that Christ was sacrificed once for all. And, 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 the, and the Catholic priest said... Oh, no, no. No, you don't understand. In a sacrifice, there's always two phases. There's the immolation phase where the animal is sacrificed and killed, and then there's the offering of what has been sacrificed. Jesus died once and for all at Calvary. He never gets crucified again. However, when we take the Eucharist, Jesus goes to his Father and offers at that time of our confession and accepting of the Eucharist. Then he goes to his Father and says, Father, my blood, my flesh, my sacrifice. He offers his sacrifice at that time to pay for the sin that's being confessed. The Protestant pastor said, oh no, oh no, that's not what happens. All sins of all people were placed on Jesus at the cross and fully punished and paid for at the cross. When we confess our sins and go to Jesus, he goes to the Father and offers his merits to the Father to remind the Father that all the sins have already been paid for at that time so the Father can then legally pardon them and remove them from the books of heaven. <laughs> and do you recognize that these are our two major systems, the Adventist system and some Protestant groups and the Catholic system arguing over this for, for uh, 
decades. Yeah. And, they, and they're completely blind to the fact they both have an arbitrary punishing God that requires the, the intercession of a, of a human sacrifice to offer them a human blood payment so that that God won't use their power to kill us. Yeah. They don't see it. They're completely blind. It's pagan. Ellen White wrote, we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for him to transgress again. And they cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Amen. She wrote that to Uriah Smith in the 1890s when he was the editor of The Signs. He did not know how to process that. It did not fit with his imperial view. He filed it in the signs, what was lost for over 50 years. It was discovered in the files at the signs, handwritten by Ellen White, in the 1950s and published in the Selected Messages. And you can find it in the Selected Messages. I think it's page 235. First Selected Message, page 235. It's design law. It's exactly what scripture teaches. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. We have a powerful message. Amen. By the way, Uriah Smith also wrote many damning things about Islam that were that had to be covered or, or restrained lest they get into the hands of leaders of Islamic countries. So Uriah Smith had problems with what he wrote and what he didn't write. And then Thursday's lesson is going to be on idolatry. We're going to just take a couple minutes, but um, does idolatry simply mean worshiping wood and stone? No. no. Can one worship Jesus Christ and go to church every Seventh-day Sabbath and be an idolater? Yes. <laughs> I'll read this statement from Ellen White to you. I, I like it. That's faith I live by, page 59. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false God as were the servants of Baal. I found that quite interesting. And then Malachi prophesied that before the terrible day of the Lord comes, I will send to you the prophet Elijah. He will bring fathers to the children and, and fathers and children together again. But, but before the great and terrible day of the Lord, um, the prophet Elijah must come again. Now, this isn't the physical person Elijah. This is the Elijah message. Remember John the Baptist, Jesus said, if you would believe it, was, is the Elijah that is to come. And it wasn't the same physical person, but he had a message to turning hearts and minds back. What is the Elijah message? And you've heard me say this before, but I think it's so powerful to unpack. I'll say it again. Who was Baal? When Elijah went to Mount Carmel, when he called Ahab and Jezebel, the, 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 the princess of Baal, together uh, and, and called them out for worshiping a false god, who was this Mesopotamian god named Baal or Baal or Baal, B-A-A-L? Who was it? Well, Baal was the son of El. El was the father supreme god. Baal was his son, as in E-L. Elohim, El Shaddai, okay? El is the father, Baal is the son. Baal is the god of creation, the, the god of, of weather, the god that brings the harvest, the god that brings the rain. Baal, in his, in his pantheon of, of this Mesopotamian god, Baal fought against Leviathan, the great serpent. And he also fought against Moat. Moat was the god of death. And in his battle with Moat, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the land. Now, what is wrong with worshiping the God who is the son of the father, who is the creator and brings the, the rain and the sunshine and the harvest, uh, who is the God of uh, thunder and lightning as well, by the way, because he's the God of the weather. 
uh, who fights the great serpent, who fights against death, who dies in his fight and rises again to bring us life. That's who this Mesopotamian God that Elijah is opposing. If you look up in any of the ancient, <laughs> the text of these guys, that's his descriptors. Why was that wrong? Do you worship a God that sounds a lot like that? <laughs> so what made it wrong? Baal required sacrifice from the worshiper to get blessing. This is what Ellen Wright wrote in Prophets and Kings 124. Determined to keep the people in deception, the priests of Baal continued to offer sacrifices to their gods and call upon them night and day to refresh the earth with costly offerings the priests attempted to appease the anger of their gods. Or 1 Kings 18.28, So the prophets prayed louder and cut themselves with knives and daggers according to their custom until the blood flowed. Baal's a god who you don't get blessings from until you give that god the proper sacrifice. Baal became, the, uh, became Zeus to the Greeks, the god of thunder. Jupiter to the Romans. Thor to the Norse people. And Jesus Christ to all Christians who worship a God that requires the payment of a blood sacrifice in order to achieve forgiveness and blessing from him. That's Baal worship. And that's why the prophet Elijah must come again. But doesn't the sanctuary service for God show a sacrifice being given to a God to... No, it doesn't show that at all. That's what people ended up... Right, and I, and I, I wish... I wish I'd... Because Ellen White has another statement where she specifically says that the sacrificial system, which was designed to teach of the love of God and his self-sacrifice to win and heal us, was perverted by Satan to teach a system of appeasement and payments. And that's why it had to be done away with. Because it became Baal worship. You're exactly right. But that was never its intention in God's design. It was to show that God himself sacrifices himself for the purpose of healing us from the sin problem and bringing us back into at one with him. Excellent. Yeah. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are not like these pagan systems of teach, that you are the creator, that you have revealed yourself perfectly in Jesus, and that if we see and understand the truth and the testimony that Jesus has given, we can come to know you. And we pray that your spirit will take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, empower us to take this end time message about you to the world, the true testimony about your kingdom and character and your design laws that we can be uh, healed, restored, reconciled, and at one with you and set so many good-hearted people that, that I think are just confused about what they've been taught free and, and restored to your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.